vote. It is on page 991. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me again. Father, we are truly thankful for your word. Thankful that you are not a God who remains silent, in the distance, aloof. You are a God who speaks, a God who has revealed his will, revealed his heart to us in words, in scripture. So now, Lord, give us hearts that are ready to receive whatever you have to say. Lord, prepare us for your word. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. You know, we may be living in the 21st century in an open, progressive society, very different from our patriarchal past where women were relegated to the home, where they couldn't vote, they couldn't hold public office, and basically were treated as second-class citizens. We've progressed as a society, but in many ways there still is a war on women being waged in our culture, in our society. According to the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report in 2015, the average woman's annual earnings is not even half a man's. Women hold less than a quarter of public offices and a fraction of other executive corporate positions. And not only are there stark economic disparities, women are commonly the victims of assault and violence. More than one in three women in the U.S. regularly fears being sexually assaulted, according to a 2016 Gallup poll. In a 2015 survey across, across 27 American universities, 23% of female undergraduates reported having experienced sexual assault or misconduct. And according to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, one out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. Now, now that I'm a husband and the father of a young daughter, these figures weigh on me like a ton of bricks. It just breaks my heart to know that, that my daughter is growing up in such a broken and dangerous world, especially for women. The church cannot abide the status quo. We must detest all, all forms of male domination, male chauvinism. We must vehemently oppose the evils of sexual discrimination, of sexual assault, and violence. But listen, church, in our zeal, in our zeal to right the wrongs of these violations against women, let's be careful not to violate the truth of God's word. 
Yes, let's oppose all forms of ignorance that lead to the suppression of women, but as people of the book, we must not ignore what it teaches, particularly about the unique differences between men and women that exist by design, by the good design of their good God and Creator. I raise this very point because we're going through the book of 1 Timothy, and we've arrived at an extremely controversial text. If you're new to Christianity, if you've never read 1 Timothy before, I, I get it if you were shocked. I get it when you read those words in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submiss- submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I get it. I, I, I'm not surprised if some of you are confused or embarrassed or even appalled at what appears to be a blatant form of sexual discrimination endorsed by the Bible. But this is what I mean about us being careful not to ignore God's word in a quest to rid the world of ignorance. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is Lord. So what he says as Lord determines what's right and wrong. Jesus gets to define what sexual discrimination is. He gets to also decide what is a good, healthy distinction between men and women. As Christians, we believe Jesus defines the categories, not secular society, not the culture at large. Now, I I think no one can deny that we live in a gender-confused world where women usually end up on the short end of the stick. There is a real injustice going on. But I'm going to contend that the truth of God's word is the solution, and it's not the source of the problem. My goal this morning is to show not just the truthfulness of 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, but its goodness and its beauty, which really go hand in hand. Now, I think because this text has so much in it, um, and it is rather controversial, I think it's wise to tackle this passage in two parts. And so I'm actually going to wait until next week to really get into the meat of our passage. And that's where I'm going to try to help you interpret and apply Paul's teaching on a woman's role in the church. But I think what's going to benefit us is for us to first consider Paul's rationale, to consider the, the theological foundation underneath his argument. Because if we can understand that theological principle that's in play, and if we can trace out the principles all the way to the instructions that we find in our text, then I think we're in a much better position to receive his word as binding and as beneficial for the church today. And so this morning, I just really want to focus on verse 13, because notice in verse 13 how it begins with the word for, and that suggests that Whatever Paul is going to say next is the foundation. It's the grounding. It's the rationale for whatever he he just said. And so what he just said, what he commanded in verses 11 to 12, is for a woman to learn quietly with all submissiveness, to not teach or exercise authority over a man. And now, now in verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
And so those are obvious references to events that took place in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. So if Paul's teaching regarding the role of women in the church is theologically rooted in the beginning, I mean like the literal beginning of the Bible, a Genesis of beginning, then it's going to benefit us to study those very passages. And in doing so, I'm going to argue that in God's very good design, men and women were created both equal and different. Equal and different. There's a very fundamental sense in which we are equal, and it needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. But there's another sense in which we are different pertaining to our roles in two particular realms that must be carefully explained, carefully delineated. And I'm also going to argue that men and women are both guilty. They're both guilty parties in a perpetual battle that has been going on due to our fallenness. And it will be something that only, we will only find peace. We will only find redemption together at the cross. I want to end our message at the foot of the cross because that's where the ground is level for us all. So, Let's begin. If you want to follow along, there's an out, outline in your bulletin, and you'll see there's four uh, points we're going to be moving through. First, let's begin by considering God's design in creation. So uh, turn with me, actually, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. That should be easy to find in your Bible. Just turn to the very first book of the Bible. It's probably going to be on the first page. Now, we're going to focus particularly in the way that God created men and women to be equals. That's what this first section is about. Now, I realize saying that God created us to be equals is not a controversial statement for anyone here. But in ancient times, and even just a century ago, and even in some cultures around the globe today, some people would be confused. They would be offended by the Bible's clear affirmation of equality between men and women. Some people aren't going to like this first point. Maybe not us here, but in the world, in the past, there will be people offended by this first point of equality. And that's not surprising. Because if the Bible is truly the word of a God who transcends all time, he transcends all cultures, then you would expect the Bible to never fit comfortably in any given culture without offending some deeply held value or ideal within that culture. So in this particular case, our culture isn't offended by talk of equality between the sexes, but we are when you start to speak of differences. But then if you just go to another culture in the past or around the globe, other cultures are offended in the exact opposite way. And so the point is, the point is to be careful not to view your own culture as normative. If this is the word of a culturally transcendent creator God, then what he says is normative, not what your culture does. Now, I totally understand that if some of you here are not actually convinced that this is the actual word of God, but I hope at least you can understand where Bible-believing Christians are coming from and why we would embrace biblical teaching that seems to run so contrary to the cultural norms that we live under. It's because 
We believe this is God's word, and we believe God's word is the ultimate norm. It defines our reality. And so let's see how it defines the relationship between men and women. So listen with me to first uh, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I don't know about you, but in my translation, that verse is broken up into three separate stanzas. The first stanza makes the point that humanity is unique in that we're the only ones created in God's own image. The Hebrew for man there can be translated generally as mankind. It's, it's inclusive of men and women. It's talking about humanity. Now, the second stanza makes a very parallel point. It does use the male pronoun, but again, it's referring to mankind. Now, in the third stanza, notice there that the singular pro- pronoun shifts to the plural, and we're told that mankind, that that, that that mankind that was created in God's image is comprised of both male and female. Men and women both bear the image of God. The imago Dei, the image of God, is stamped equally on both. Now think about what that means. That means that God is not gendered. God is not gendered. Yes, he is referred to in the Bible with the male pronoun. And yes, two of the three persons of the Trinity are revealed as father and son. And there are good reasons for why that's the case. But listen, it does not imply that God more closely identifies with men. It does not mean that males more closely resemble or more closely reflect God's image compared to females. Genesis 1.27 makes it clear that they equally bear the image of God. Men don't bear it more than women. We're created as equals. Equals in value, equals in dignity, equals in worth. This Biblical, theological principle is what many people call male-female equality. Male-female equality, and it is affirmed throughout Scripture. But we have to be careful here. We have to be careful not to confuse male-female equality with sameness. They're not the same thing. Equality and sameness are not synonymous terms. If you treat them synonymously, if, if equality requires sameness, well, then think about what that means. That means two people of two different ethnicities could never be equal. And that's called racism. And I assume we all realize the error of that kind of thinking, of assuming that equality requires sameness. I mean, just think about God himself, right? I mean, in the very Godhead, there is equality, but there is not sameness. There is not just one father that makes up the entire Godhead. At the same time, there are neither three fathers. No, there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different persons. And yet, at the same time, there is deep, fundamental unity and equality 
between those three persons. I belabor this point because I'm about to move on to the next point, and I'm about to emphasize our differences, the fact that men and women are not the same. But I hope you understand that I still mean to affirm that we are equal. We are equal in value, dignity, and worth. So let's move on to the second point, and let's see in what sense did God create men and women to be different. And I'm going to argue that it primarily has to do with our roles, our roles. God assigned different roles to men and women, making us equal in worth, yet different in role. Equal in worth, different in role, all by design. Now, I emphasize that phrase, by design, because I want to distinguish between two theological positions that differ on this relationship between men and women. You see, everyone agrees, and and these two positions would agree, that throughout human history and in most cultures, there has not been sameness in gender roles, but a difference with leadership tilted towards men. What distinguishes these two positions, these two two camps, is deciding whether those differences in gender roles are a result of the fall of man because of sin, or did they exist in the garden prior to the fall as part of God's good design? That's, That's the crux of the issue. That's the difference between the two. Now, the first position, the first camp, is called the egalitarian position, egalitarian position. Uh, Sometimes it's known as evangelical feminism. And egalitarians would read scripture as teaching no distinction in role between men and women in the garden pre-fall, that there was no distinction whatsoever. So male leadership is considered a result of the fall, and male leadership would be viewed synonymously with male domination. They would interpret the penalty that was imposed on Eve for her part in the fall as a curse to have to live in a fallen world where male leadership or male domination prevails. Now, as Christians who believe in the renewing power of the gospel, egalitarians would teach that in Christ, women can experience redemption and society can be can be uh, redeemed through the gospel. And so the community of the redeemed, that would be the church, should return to a state like the garden where there are no role distinctions between men and women, where leadership in the church is not dominated by men. That's egalitarianism. That's the position um, that teaches there were no distinctions in the garden And so in the church, it should be the same. No distinctions in role. The other camp is called the complementarian position. Complementarians believe that men and women are equal in, as I said before, value, dignity, and worth, but are called to different roles in the home and in the church. Those are those two realms I mentioned earlier. And those roles are meant to complement each other, hence the term complementarianism. Now, complementarians insist that male leadership actually stands on the opposite end of the spectrum from male domination. They are not the same thing. They are antitheses of one another. 
Male domination is the assertion of a man over a woman with no regard to their equality. Complementarians reject that, and they hold to both theological positions of male-female equality and, at the same time, male leadership. Specifically, they teach that men bear the primary responsibility to lead within the realms of the home and the church. Now, unlike egalitarians, complementarians see gender roles within God's good design before the fall in the garden. And so they believe redemption doesn't eradicate those role distinctions between men and women, but redemption certainly does transform them. Complementarians insist that because of the fall, there has been a twisting. There has been a, a, a distortion of God's good design so that nowadays men tend to either dominate women with their strength or aggression, or they shirk their responsibility to lead with their passivity and their apathy. But Jesus came to redeem to redeem and to restore God's good design starting in Christian homes and Christian churches, to restore those roles as God designed it to be. That's complementarianism. And so, friends, what I want to do now is to demonstrate the strength of that position, that second position, complementarianism, by showing how differences in roles between men and women were established as part of God's good design. I, I, I believe there are at least nine observations in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that point us in that direction. But for the sake of time, we're not going to go into all nine. I'll probably have to share those to, with you in another uh, uh, setting. But I'll just identify the three strongest ones that relate to men taking the primary responsibility to lead in the home, and in the church. And so this is the first observation. And the first observation relates to the order of creation and how God created man first. If you look in Genesis 2, verse 7, God creates Adam. But it's not until you get to actually verse 22 that he creates Eve for Adam. And we should pause and we should ask why this is so. I mean, why not create Eve first? Or, or better, why not create them both out of the same handful of dust at the exact same time? Wouldn't that demonstrate male-female equality? Well, sure. Yeah, it would definitely reinforce the biblical point that was already taught in chapter 1. But Genesis 2 is trying to stress something different. Namely, that in creating the man first, God was giving him the primary responsibility to lead. There is a firstness to Adam. Now, I, I know that in our culture, to be first means to be the best. But that's not how the Bible treats it. In ancient cultures, to be first simply means to be given a responsibility that's not given to the second. That's why the, the firstborn son by virtue of being born first, had the primary responsibility to lead the family once the father dies. It's not because he's better. It's not because he's smarter than his other siblings. It's simply because he was born first. Now, you know, I, I know that some would insist that this whole order of creation argument um, uh, you know, falls flat because the order is arbitrary, uh, that we're making just way too much a big deal out of Adam being created first. But then those who say that should really talk to the Apostle Paul, because 
You remember, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he's the one who makes the argument for distinct gender roles in the church based on creation order. He said, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so for Paul, the fact that Adam was created first has implications for leadership that apply not just to that first couple and their household, but for all house households and all churches, which, remember, he later describes as the household of God in chapter 3, verse 15. So that's the first observation, the order of creation. The second observation that points to gender roles in the garden pre-fall is the fact that the woman, and not the man, was called a helper. The woman was called a helper. This identification of Eve as Adam's helper relates to this whole idea of being equal in worth, but different in role. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Let me read verse 18 for us. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Jump, jump to verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So it was really only until God puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib from his body, makes it into a woman. And then man said, verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So what we see here is that Eve is equal with Adam. He's equal, she's equal with him in, in that there's no other creature out there that is fit for him. Eve alone is Adam's equal in a wife a man finds his equal. She's a helper fit for him. Now, notice how you don't see it described the other way around. Adam is not called Eve's helper. And, and they're not even described as mutual helpers for each other. Instead, we see a differentiation between roles. By virtue of being a man, Adam was called to lead. By virtue of being a woman, Eve was called to help. And that shouldn't be interpreted as an insult to Eve or to any other woman because in all matters, all things that matter for value, dignity, and worth, she is his equal. But I realize, I, I, I totally get it, that some are still going to strongly react to calling women helpers. And it's probably because to them the role would imply some sort of inferior, in, inferiority. The helpers are considered inferior to leaders. Now, I know that may be the way the world sees it, but we've got to see it as, for those of us who, if we're Christians, we've got to see it as the Scriptures define these terms. And Scripture has a very different view of helpers. In her book, Radical Womanhood, Carolyn McCulley rightly points out that this word helper is used in Scripture to refer to God acting as our helper. Many times he takes on that title. Consider with me Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. 
There are plenty of other passages where God is described as our helper or our help. And so she then writes this. She says, if God, who is obviously and infinitely superior to us, if he unblushingly refers to himself as our helper, then we should be proud to use the same term. So by calling himself our helper, God is challenging any condescending notions that we might have towards the act of helping. And he's really restoring the role of helper to its rightful position of dignity. Sisters, if God is neither offended nor ashamed to bear the name helper, then neither should you be. The point is this. You can be equal to men while performing a different role than men because your worth does not come from the role that you play. Your worth comes from the image of God in you. You see, one of the greatest evils of our society is the way that we devalue people based on their role. We evaluate people. We evaluate people's worth based on the significance that they can play in our society. Do you see how inhumane that can be if you extend that logic out? Sisters, please do not buy the societal lie that says that your worth and your value is tied to your role. No, it is tied to the imago Dei that is in you. You are priceless because you were made, like all men, in God's image. Remember that. Third observation here. The third observation suggesting gender roles existing pre-fall is the way in which God held Adam and not Eve primarily accountable for the fall. God held Adam and not Eve primarily accountable. If you recall, in Genesis 3, the serpent deceives Eve, Eve into eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then she shares that fruit with her husband. So who sinned first here? Eve. But who did God summon first? Adam. Let me read to you Genesis 3.9. But the Lord God called to the man, and said to him, where are you? So even though Eve sinned first, when God confronts them, he summons Adam to give an account. The husband bears the primary responsibility for the direction of his family. That's called leadership. Brothers, listen to this. If you have a wife, if you have a family, the burden is on you to lead. God will call you to account. He will summon you first. He will ask you the tough questions. Yes, he's going to get to your wife. Yes, he's going to get to your kids, but he'll go to you first because he expects you to lead. Now, to be honest, I'm surprised that men aren't the ones leading the complaint against the Bible teaching male leadership. Some would call it unfair. Like, why, why should Adam be summoned first? Why not Eve? You know, if she's the one that sinned first. It's because Adam bears a unique responsibility for the both of them. He is called by God to lead his family. So those are the three observations that I want to draw to your attention. I think we've seen now 
in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, how men and women are created to be equals, at the same time created to be different, particularly in their roles. But as we read on in Genesis 3, we see that men and women are fallen and at war with each other. Now, under the curse of sin, as we've said, their God-assigned gender roles have been twisted and distorted. And so instead of complementing one another, husbands and wives are at war with one another. There is a proverbial battle of the sexes going on. So listen to the curse that befalls this first couple and that affects all of us as well. Look at Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read 16 to 17. So 16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now notice with me, there are three parts to this curse. Three parts. And notice how the curse keeps distorting something that had previously existed. And so first, notice how Adam's God-given role was to raise food from the ground. He was to do that in the garden. But now that role is distorted and in that, the ground won't yield food without a bunch of pain. And second, notice how Eve's God-given role of bearing children is now distorted in that childbirth won't happen anymore without pain. And there's a third aspect of the, culture, uh, of the curse. There's a distortion in how they relate to one another. And again, the curse, it didn't introduce something new but rather it distorted what was already there, making it painful. So on the woman's part, we see that her God-given role of submission to her husband is distorted. You see that, uh, look at verse 16, that word for desire there? That word for desire of her husband is not referring to a romantic desire. It's referring to an aggressive desire, a desire to rule over her husband, to control him. If you look in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, that same word is used there where God says to Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, in the Hebrew, the exact same six words are found in the exact same order in both those verses, in Genesis 4, 7 and Genesis 3, 16. And so there's an obvious connection here. Having Genesis 4, 7, you can now better interpret chapter 3, verse 16 to mean that under the curse, the woman will have an aggressive desire to rule over her husband. But then God says, but he shall rule over you. And that word there means to rule by by great power or force or strength. And so it has a very negative connotation. It doesn't, it doesn't refer to someone leading among equals, but rather someone ruling by virtue of their power and strength, usually harshly, usually selfishly. So before the fall, in the garden, Adam led his wife in a loving, considerate way, and Eve gave her willing submission and functioned as his helper in a complementary fashion. But after the fall, 
because of sin, Eve will seek to dominate and control her husband, perhaps by using her words, perhaps by using her sexuality. And Adam will respond by trying to dominate his wife, by using his strength. Or, on the flip side, maybe he'll clam up and abdicate his role in the home. And that's really just a form of passive aggression. But the point is, the point is that the fall brought a distortion of previous roles. It didn't introduce new roles. It just distorted the existing ones. In God's original design, husbands lead their wives and wives help their husbands. It's sin that has sadly distorted and twisted this good design. But of course, this leads to our last point. Let's talk about men and women humbled and with each other at the cross. The first Adam The first Adam failed to exercise his God-given duty to lead, and that's what's led to so much pain and so much division between men and women. But according to the gospel, God wasn't through. God sent a second Adam who submitted himself perfectly under God, who did not drop the ball. He exercised a loving, sacrificial, considerate leadership that led him directly to the cross. And there... At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Men and women are equal. That is, equal in guilt and equal in need of a redeemer. At the cross, Jesus died for for our our, our divisiveness, for our, our sinful efforts to dominate each other. At the cross, we're finally restored to God and to God's good design. Now, if, if we've been mistaken here in, in our reading of Genesis, if gender roles are only the result of the fall, if gender roles are actually part of the curse, then you would expect, when you get to the New Testament, you would expect a, 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 the New Testament to reverse the curse. You would expect to find passages repudiating male leadership. But of course, you don't, and you won't. Now, if we've been reading Genesis correctly, What you would expect to find is the New Testament trying to reverse the curse by calling women to support their husband's leadership and and exhorting husbands to not lead their wives harshly. And that is exactly what you find in the New Testament. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In Christ, free of the curse of sin, women can willingly and joyfully submit to their husband's leadership and men can lovingly and considerately lead their wives, lead their households, and lead the household of God, which is the church. Next week, we're going to see how the theological principles of male equality and male leadership, how they can both play out together in the local church. We're going to study that passage, 1 Timothy 2, 11, all the way to 15, get into the nitty-gritty. And I hope then to show you the truthfulness, the goodness, and the beauty of God's establishment of male leadership in the church in the form of male eldership. Male leadership established in the form of male eldership. I know that sounds strange to Western ears, 
but I've, I hope that, that we've laid enough of a, fa- of a theological foundation today so that next week you're able to, to better receive God's instructions for the church in all its fullness. So that's what we have to look forward to. But let me conclude with a few application questions. Three questions. Husbands. Husbands. What is one practical way that you can lead your wife or your kids this week to honor and serve God? Maybe it's leading them to read something edifying together. Maybe it's leading them to pray together or to serve someone in need together. What are you going to do this week? And wives, what is one practical way that you can help your husband lead or encourage him to lead you and your family this week in order to honor God, to serve God? And to the unmarried, what does God want you to be praying for regarding your own heart and working on regarding your own character as I know most of you hope to take up the role of husband or wife someday? How will a better understanding of God's good design shape what you're going to be praying for for yourself this week? Let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, I I thank you for the truthfulness of, 